Great to have Ken Weitzmer here with us. Let me tell you a little bit about Ken before he comes and shares. He's a leader, innovator, and social entrepreneur. He is the president of Kilns College, where he teaches courses on philosophy and justice. He is the founder of the Justice Conference, uh, which we're going to show you a promo of sometime before the end of the meeting. It's an annual international conference that introduces men and women to a wide range of organizations and conversations relating to biblical justice and God's call to our lives away. Ken is a consultant and creative advisor to nonprofits and a sought-after speaker on justice, church, and culture. He's a church planter and lead pastor at Antioch Church in Oregon, along with his wife, Tamara, and their four daughters, four girls. I have, God bless you, brother. Ken is the author of three books, The Call to Live and Die for Bigger Things, The Grand Paradox, which is the messiness of life, the mystery of God, and the necessity of faith. And this book has just been released, which is Create versus Copy, and we have all of his books for sale uh, in the entryway before you leave today, so feel free to pick up one, two, or three of those. I'd like you to put your hands together for a man with a fine hairstyle. God bless you, mate. Well, good morning, everybody. It's, uh, I'm, I'm a bit jet-lagged, so my time zone is actually somewhere over the Pacific. I don't know exactly where it is. I had to have a cup of coffee while I was preaching at the other uh, service. Um, and if you have a Bible, go ahead and put a finger in Isaiah chapter 59. We're going we're gonna to speak from Isaiah 59. They did that to me yesterday night, and it caught me so off guard, I thought my pants had fallen or something, you know. It was just... <laughs> Not used to used to cheers when I open uh, the scriptures. I got to bring that back to the states. Uh, a little bit about me. I uh, I I came to faith at age 22. Always into uh, some of the things that I'm into now. But I want to kind of give you some context so you know why these things are a passion of mine. Uh, but it really begins with my dad. My dad was born in 1944 in Nazi-occupied Holland. Um, he. Uh, my grandfather, so I grew up with these stories, but my grandfather uh, hid underneath the stairs because towards the end of the war, they were taking not just the Jews that they'd cleaned out, the, the European Jews that they'd cleaned out to camps, uh, but they were taking able-bodied men to work in factories as well. So my grandfather hid underneath the stairs. And when my grandmother was too pregnant with my father, uh, my grandfather had to come out from hiding and dress up like a woman um, because at that point in time, you had to drive or ride a pedalable about 10 miles into the countryside to forage for food. Uh, food was really scarce towards the end of the war. So my dad was born into that context. He grew up in Reconstruction Holland. And when he was about uh, eight or nine in 1953, they immigrated to the States. So kind of just like the archival footage, um, if you've ever seen some of that, the European um, story of coming to the States on a boat into New York Harbor, past the Statue of Liberty, uh, there's a famous island called Ellis Island, which the European Jew, uh, I'm sorry, Europeans that had immigrated to the States uh, were processed on. That was closed in the late 40s. And so it was past Ellis Island to um, the state of New Jersey, where there's a, a kind of a facility in Hoboken, New Jersey. And with $20 in their pocket, my, uh, my, I have two aunts, so my dad has two sisters, his family got on um, a train and went all the way to Pasadena, California. Uh, California, I met in Sydney two days ago, two people that didn't know where California was, which was surprising to me. I thought uh, California is like its own country. Um, I thought, I thought every, uh, everyone knows it, but I, I didn't know, I don't know anything about Australia. So on the way over here, I was asking uh, um, geographical questions. So I 
But, uh, but my, my dad ended up in Pasadena. My grandfather was a Dutch baker. And so he started as a short order cook, working multiple jobs, and then retired as the chef at the Disneyland Hotel. Disneyland's another country unto itself. You know, you might not know where California is, but you know where Disneyland is. Um, but so uh, this was kind of my dad's story as an immigrant. So he uh, joined the military and this paid for college for him. Um, so I, I was born and, and grew up in kind of the moving every two to three years. And when I was about the same age as my dad when he was an immigrant from Europe, uh, about eight or nine, this is 79, early in 79, dad came home on a Tuesday and sat my sister and I down and said, we're going to have some people come live with us. And I'm an extrovert, so I thought uh, the more the merrier. I didn't really know what was going on. But the rest of the week, we shuffled around our whole house. And on that Saturday, we actually went to an airstrip and picked up uh, a family of five. Not, not quite a nuclear family. It was a brother and a sister, and then a husband and a wife and their small child. And they had escaped the genocide in Cambodia uh, that had raped the 70s, you know, the Khmer Rouge regime, Pol Pot. If you, if you don't know that history, you can go watch the movie The Killing Fields. Um, really horrific, uh, almost half the population um, being, being uh, murdered in the countryside uh, under that genocide. And, um, and so they had escaped Cambodia to a Thai refugee camp, and because in those days you had to be sponsored to come into the States uh, as refugees, my dad sponsored them, and they came in and, and lived with us. They showed up, didn't speak a lick of English, shaved heads because of lice in the camps, uh, refugee camps, and Foy Long, who was the husband, spent a whole day writing a letter in a Khmer, which is the language, uh, a Khmer English dictionary to my dad uh, about boys with guns and people eating people and, and really detailing their whole story. And so at that age, everything changed for me. The smells, um, my day-to-day -day existence changed, sharing our house, family, lived in our house for over a year, watched um, as my parents took them through the naturalization process of becoming US citizens, learning how to drive cars, uh, get jobs, eventually get a house of their own. So my weekends were spent this way, right? Uh, some of my, my memories as a child are of going into San Francisco uh, where there was a, a Cambodian community and with this family going and attending weddings, which, which was very different from, from baseball um, and the other things I was doing on different days. And, and so that was kind of my experience. And so um, my dad and his story as an immigrant shaped what he did later. And my upbringing in, in this house, in this context, learning what it was like for some vulnerable people, how to empathize with their story. When I became a Christian age 22, that really shaped kind of my adulthood. Uh, it did for my sister too, by the way. My sister is a lawyer in Hollywood, and she's one uh, female lawyer of the year in Los Angeles for her pro bono work with asylum seekers. So she does a lot of work with uh, Central Africa Republic, Cameroon, other places uh, where people have been victims of violence, women, uh, and, and helping them come to the States as a, asylum seekers. So it's an interesting thing how what happens in our story, our narrative, even some of the most painful things or, or or challenging things end up shaping who we are later in life, right? Wordsworth said, the child is the father of the man. Um, the child is the father of the man. What, what comes before shapes what comes after. And so when I, when I came to faith at age 22 and started reading scripture and came across passages of the orphan, the widow, and the stranger, the alien, the foreigner, the refugee, the, the Cambodian family, 
right? I understood it at a deep level. It connected with me. And so I tore into the scriptures about this worldview that was beginning to make sense to me of how God and uh, there to be flourishing in the world, that, that all of us matter. We all have dignity as being made in the image of God. And I went on to grad school to study philosophy, to get into the history of ethics, and to really get at this justice stuff. What was strange, though, was that in American evangelicalism in the, in the, the 90s, um, it was, you couldn't really talk about justice with, without people getting a bit skittish that somehow you were replacing the gospel. There's a real fear of what, uh, what was called the gospel, that if we talk about these love things, somehow we're, we're forgetting the main things, we're getting off on tangents, and, and that's all well and good, but we need to keep the main thing the main thing. Um, and so it was a really strange thing to watch Christians push against the teaching of scriptures uh, in the scriptures in the name of pr- protecting the scriptures, um, which is kind of what the Pharisees did in the New Testament. Jesus says, hey, it's all fine and well, the things you're, you're doing. You're tithing this way, that way and, and getting your dress a certain way. Um, but you shouldn't have neglected the weightier matters of the law, like love and mercy and justice, right? So it, it's kind of an interesting thing. So I kind of have dedicated my, my ministry to really trying to help with, the, with an understanding of a theology of justice, that we would be able to bring this back and make it holistic once again and not kind of compartmentalize. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's a little bit of my context, and we're going to dive into Isaiah 59 because I'll tell you that what we have here, by the way, um, Christians in America are complex. They're not monolithic. Um, contrary to, to popular opinion, Donald Trump is not our pastor. Um, uh, but what, uh, what, what, you, what you can generalize is that we have this kind of three-part system. That the gospel is the main thing. When you say the word, the gospel, it's, it's almost like you, you announce it with Rob's voice and, and it should resonate, right? And that's the, the center. Do you know what I'm talking about? The gospel is the center. And then the, the next rung out is righteousness, right? Our personal purity or our, our pie relationship with God is, is kind of the next most. And then the tertiary, the third kind of component is, is justice, it's, it's, the, it's the call center, and it's the refugees, and it's the homeless ministry, and it's a good thing, and we're glad that some do it in our church, and, and, uh, and we like to know that our church is doing it, and, but it's kind of the third rung out. This is kind of what we live in in America, th- these three kind of rungs. Does that make sense? And what I want to do is say this is categorically false, and that all three of these things, righteousness, justice, and the gospel, are one holistic reality. And that you, you actually can't understand the gospel without an understanding of justice language. That's my thesis, okay? So um, you don't have to buy it now, but let me argue it for you, okay? So here's Isaiah 59. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to take it piece by piece. Isaiah 59, verse 14. We're just going to jump in. So justice is driven, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. And the Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was a, there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him. And his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate 
and the helmet of salvation on his head, etc., etc. Let's just take the first part of this. By the way, this whole chapter is, is replete with phrases about there being no justice. Verse 11, we look for justice but find none, etc. This comes after Isaiah 58, which is one of the most fast chapters in all of Scripture, which really is, is God saying, how many of you have ever read Isaiah 58? Just show of hands. Okay, Isaiah 58 is God saying, um, you clamor for me with, uh, with a lot of zeal, with all this energy of worship to, to, to draw close to me, but you're missing the point that I actually would rather, instead of all of your energy, that you would go out and visit people in prison, that you would clothe the naked, that you somehow feed the hungry, that in doing that, you would actually be drawing close to me. So that worship isn't just um, kind of clamor. Worship is joining me in what I care about. Justice, okay? So I 58 into 59, and we, we get this justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. So I'm going to use this little chunk to define justice. There's two ways we can define justice. Uh, the first is uh, by, by its similarity to the word righteousness, um, justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. These two are actually synonymous. They both mean right relationship with God, self, others, and creation. Righteousness means a right relationship with God, self, others, and creation. Justice means a right relationship with God, self, others, and creation. Righteousness comes from the, the German uh, root word recht or, or alignment, rightness, truth, um, uh, rectitude, Okay. Um, this is kind of what righteousness means. It's straight. It's, 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 it's whole. It's good. Justice, the same thing. Equity, fairness, um, goodness. So we get this kind of a, a similarity between these two words. It's important. Why? Um, because we take justice and righteousness to be two very different concepts in, in our, our modern usage. Okay? We take justice to be the social ethic on the side, and we take righteousness to be vertical relationship between myself and God, my own personal purity or piety. Is that fair enough? Okay, let me just try and debunk that very quickly. Turn to Matthew 6, if you'd like. It's the Gospels towards the, the back of your Bible. Matthew 6, this is the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says this. He says... Be careful not to practice your righteousness. Other translations will say your acts of righteousness. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness and others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. And so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Uh, truly, I say that they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your, your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Okay, so according to Jesus, what are acts of righteousness? Giving to the needy. Kind of blows up our definition, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's a little easier. Let me give you, give you the secret here. The definition is a completely false and arbitrary one because there aren't two words in the New Testament, one for right, one for justice. There's actually only one Greek word. Uh, the New Testament was written in Greek. It's only one Greek word. It's, it's dikaiosune. And we sometimes translate it righteousness. We sometimes translate it justice. So when we take justice and righteousness to be two different concepts, we're actually creating a distinction that, that isn't there because there's only one New Testament Greek word, dikaiosune. So the question really is, what does dikaiosune mean? Does that make sense? And dikaiosune, um, I would submit to you, means just righteousness. 
if, I mean, using an English language, which is a, a foreign language, to try and get at the concept, let's just call it justice slash righteousness, okay? Let me explain this to you one step further. Um, you know, I'm not a heretic. Um, uh, I have a coin. I usually travel with it. It's kind of a cool coin, but I thought I was going to lose it at a security uh, in an airport one time. But it's an old, ancient Roman coin. It took me a year to, to hunt for it. I knew about it, so I went looking for it. On one side, it's got Nero's head. Um, Nero, the emperor Nero. What does that tell us about the coin? Very old, but more specifically, uh, he, was, he, was in that, he was one of the Caesars. But what, is, what, is it, what does it do for that coin? A lot of money. It, it dates it, right? Regula or uh, uh, Marcus Aurelius isn't going to put Nero's head on a coin, right? Okay? So we know the coin. It was, it was under the emperor Nero. Uh, uh, the emperor Nero was the emperor who killed the apostle Paul. So this is basically from the time of the Apostle Paul. This is when uh, the Apostle Paul was writing the book of Romans and people, which is where we get a lot of the righteousness language in the New Testament, okay? So we get the date. On the other side of the coin, we have something really interesting. It's got the goddess Justicia, and the goddess Justicia uh, has, is basically where the American, their Lady Liberty. Uh, the American founders were really wrapped up with the kind of myth of the old Roman Republic. That's why we have a Senate, and it's why if you go to Washington, D.C., it, it, it's all classical, neoclassical architecture. Uh, our founders really kind of had this glorified image of ancient Rome, right? So Lady Liberty is the goddess Justicia. Um, in this, on this coin, you have a, a, grain, a sheath of grain in one hand and scales in the other. What do we know about scale? It's justice, right? Fair scales, blind justice, all this stuff. Um, what's really interesting is above uh, the goddess Justicia... Uh, which is a Latin word, is the Greek word dikaiosune. This coin in Alexandria, and it was actually a grain ration coin. It was, a, it was a coin that people would use to access grain. It was, in the United States, we call it food stamp coin. It's, it's how poor people got grain from the emperor, okay? Um, so this is the word dikaiosune. Now, I'm not trying to say that, that let's completely obliterate our concept of righteousness, what I'm saying is, is you can't talk about righteousness without realizing that the people of the day that Paul was writing to had a necessary kind of social component, horizontal component to their understanding of dikaiosune, justice slash righteousness. This really blows you, your mind when you read the New Testament, and every time you see righteousness, just read justice slash righteousness. Um, blessed are those who are persecuted for Righteousness sake, uh, they'll inherit the kingdom of heaven. I used to think um, that if you used words um, and your friends teased you, uh, you were being persecuted for righteousness sake. That's that morality-based understanding of righteousness, right? So if you're, if you're teased in school by your friends, that's okay, you're being, you're being persecuted for righteousness sake. Um, how did Jesus die? How did Jesus die? Crucified on a cross. I don't think Jesus, when he used the word persecuted, was talking about being teased. When Jesus used the word persecuted, I think he was saying when, when you lean into injustice, right? Um, I have a friend in Phnom Penh that, that tries to take girls out of forced sex slavery. Um, and when you push into that, you're pushing into organized crime. 
right? And when you push into organized crime, what happens? They push back with death threats. Uh, or they take some of your work, beat them up as a message to you. Go back to where you came from or stop doing what you're doing. So I, I think much more to task is Jesus is saying, when you push into the powers, uh, the temple structure of Jerusalem that Jesus pushed into, he flipped the tables of money over. He attacked the leaders and their credibility because they weren't taking care of the poor, doing the things that, that God had asked them to do. He pushed into the Roman system. When, when you push into, and it pushes back, Jesus is saying, it's okay, blessed when you're persecuted for righteousness, justice sake, because you're gonna ultimately inherit the kingdom of heaven because you're doing what I've asked you to do. You're pursuing justice. Um, this blow, when, you, when you, you realize Paul, when he writes, the kingdom of heaven is justice, Joy and peace, righteousness, joy and peace, right? Justice, um, the way things ought to be, right? And joy, what comes about in shalom, the goodness when we, we, we try and labor for that, not just for ourselves, but for others as well. So the first thing we get from Isaiah 58 here is this understanding of justice based on righteousness. I'm, I don't want to belabor that too much. I could I keep going, but it's a, an important distinction um, that we need to grab hold of uh, right away is that our reading of, of the Bible has been, has been mistakenly shaped by our bad understanding of some English words that were used synonymous back in the 1600s, but in the 2000s, we see them as different even though they're not different. 28 times justice and righteousness are used as a couplet or what's called a Hebrew parallelism in the Old Testament, Proverbs and Psalms. Justice, righteousness, justice, righteousness. Why? Because it's an oral culture. You can't bold a word. You can't italicize a word. So what do you do? Underscore it by repetition. That's called Hebrew parallelism. Moving along. Truth is stumbled in the streets. Cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. Whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. Another way of defining justice is by analogy to truth. Now, this is going to be the most boring and difficult part of my sermon. So sit up straight. No one's me. Um, sit up straight and just hang with me for, for literally four minutes here, all right? Because this is really important. Christians, ascri why, why are justice and truth brought up together here, okay? One of the ways of uh, justice is by looking at truth. Truth, for, the, for Christians, um, we, we, we ascribe to what's called the correspondence theory of truth. Sounds really fancy. It's not. Truth is what corresponds what is, Christians believe this. You don't get to make up truth. You don't get to bend truth. Truth isn't what it is for you. Truth is what is. It's really cold, objective, and harsh, right? Uh, the planet Pluto, when I grew up, planet, I heard like a number of years ago it wasn't a planet anymore. And then I heard recently that they thought maybe it's a planet again. All of this time, Pluto has not cared what we think about it, right? It is what it is. Right? Um, it's, it's a realism. Truth corresponds to what is. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? It's a universal concept. It's an umbrella, and I sit underneath it. I don't get to monkey with it. it it's, it's there at all times. Even if I don't know it, even if I'm blind to it, truth um, is harsh. Like, I can, I can think that that wall isn't there, but truth forces its way on me when I try to walk through that wall. Right? Okay? Just if truth is what is, Justice is what ought to be. If truth is what is, justice is what ought to be. So uh, when God created the world, 
he said it was good. Why did he say it was good? Because he had a plan for what he was creating. And, and so the actual creation was a good representation of his plans. It, it brought about what he intended to bring about so, such that he could say, good, it's the way I wanted it to be. And, and the way I want it to be is when things function in a certain way, in a certain kind of health, where it's like a well-watered garden. That's why we have the Garden of Eden. And relationships are, are in harmony. God is with us walking in the garden, right? And, and it's as it ought to be. So at all times, what God thinks ought to be is what justice is. So there's a distinction we can bring up now. Primary justice is when things are as they are. Almost done with the boring part, hang with me. Primary justice is when things are as they ought to be, the love of a mother for a child. We, we know it when we see it, don't we? Okay? Um, but we live in a broken world, there's sin, so things aren't alignment, they're not as they ought to be, they're bent. C.S. Lewis has a, a space trilogy. Um, very few people have read it, but it's marvelous. And in the first book, it's out of the silent planet. And basically, the silent planet is Earth because no light emanates. Angels don't sing because there's sin. It's fallen. Mars, where, where this character Ransom travels to, has never known sin. And the character Ransom is, is modeled after C.S. Lewis's friend J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings. And J.R.R. Tolkien was the one who led C.S. Lewis to the Lord. Fascinating, right? So Lewis is modeling this character Ransom after Tolkien. Tolkien was a linguist. He got hurt in World War I, laid in a hospital bed, and made up languages. It's crazy, right? That's why the Lord has all these like elfin languages and things like that. So this character Ransom is a linguist, and he's interacting with the, the native uh, people of this planet on Mars, and they don't have a word for sin because they've never fallen. And so the, the word up being the people on the silent planet, they're bent and I love that picture. Uh, we're not as we ought to be. We're bent. And, and it's a beautiful picture of sin. I'm bent. Paul says, I don't things that, that I know I ought to do or want to do. There's this sin that lives in me. I don't do the things I always want to do. Um, and so I'm, I'm bent. And so the work we do to, to unbend things or to put things back the way ought to be, we can call restorative justice. So boring part over You've got primary justice, things as they ought to be. Restorative justice is the, the bending back into alignment, rectitude, righteousness. Got it? Okay, now we're going to move on quick, and we're going to put it all together. So here we go. The Lord looked, and he was displeased. He was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So God is looking at these people, and this is after he's rescued them out of slavery. He's given them the Mosaic law. He's brought them into the land. He's given them the judges. Then he's given them the kings. Then he's given them the prophets. God has always been just society. His people would be as they ought to be, care of one another fairly and rightly. And after all of this time, there's still no justice. And not only that, there's not gonna be because if it didn't happen with the law and the and the judges and the king prophets then it's not gonna happen so God is looking he's appalled and he realizes there's no one that's going to be able to intervene and fix this thing make it as it ought to be make sense so his own arm achieved salvation for him 
And then we get, and his own righteousness sustained him and these messianic things that allude to Jesus. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. This is really because we're now using salvation, righteousness, and justice all interchangeably here. Things are not as they ought to be, injustice, and God's own right arm breaks into the world, put things back as they ought to be, which is aligning them so that they're right and true, which is restorative justice, which is reconciling it back into relationship with God, which is essentially saving it so that it's preserved and can be as God intended it to be in creation. Okay, so uh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is the inbreaking right arm of God to work restorative justice for God's people. Now let's walk it through the, the gospel here. What's the first time we see the, the phrase good news? By the way, gospel just simply means good news, right? What's the first time we see good news spoken about in, in the gospels? Anyone hear us? What's the first time we see good news talked about in the gospels? Angels show up to shepherds and they say, we bring you um, uh, good news uh, of glad tidings that shall be for all the people. And then it goes on to talk about peace on earth goodwill to men. Why? It's beginning. The right arm of God has broken into the world and what was prophesied about is beginning and it's going to bring about alignment, shalom, peace, goodness for all people and you should be excited about it. Good news. What's the second time we see good news in the Gospels? Jesus opens up this very book I'm reading. He gets in front of a group of people, opens up this very book that I'm reading and begins reading Isaiah scroll. Uh, scroll. Um, in chapter 61. So if you want to just turn one page over, Jesus gets up to begin his earthly ministry and he says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it says, and the day of vengeance. You want to know something? Real? Jesus left that part out when he read this. He's not talking about judgment. He's talking about restorative justice, which is good news. So to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort all who mourn and provi provide for the in Zion. And then he, and he talks about the oil of joy instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a spirit of de despair. And so Jesus then rolls up the scroll and he says, this is happening in your presence. The inbreaking right arm of God has come to work restorative justice for his people, to put it back the way it ought to be. Amazing. The next time we see good news is Jesus goes out into the countryside and he's healing people. And people start running around to other people. And what? Good news. There's someone that's fixing things. Putting it back the way it ought to be. And so we see this ministry of Jesus. John the Baptist sends messengers because he's worried. Maybe it was all in vain. And he sends messengers to Jesus and they say, are you the one? And Jesus says, essentially, um, Ken Weitzman translation, go tell the good news to John the Baptist. I'm working restorative justice. I'm putting things back to be. I'm, I'm, I'm returning sight to the blind. The lame are walking. Uh, prisoners are being set free. Go back and tell John the Baptist what was prophesied is happening. The good news is happening. Then we move forward and we get the day of the good news. Jesus dies on the cross. By the way, this is what we mean when we say the gospel in contemporary society. 
Um, we mean the cross of Jesus Christ. His atonement, meaning he dies in, in a way of, of, of uh, being able to forgive us our sins. He's punished for our sins. His death atones for our sins so that we don't have to be punished for our sins. It's the atonement. Now, it is a necessary part of the good news, but we mistakenly say, say it as the entirety of the good news. Okay? Let me show you why that's a problem. Um, what's the next good news after good? Yeah. That's why we wear pastel. Right? I mean, that's the happiest day, the goodest news is in all of the Christian calendar. And we act as if it doesn't even exist. Like the good news, the gospel is the cross. But Paul even said himself uh, in 1 Corinthians, if you have the cross but, out, but not the resurrection, you have, some, you have nothing actually. And, and that's a pretty depressing thing to have this without the resurrection, right? Two parts of a story or two halves. So you have the resurrection, but it doesn't even stop there. After the resurrection, Jesus is traveling and he says, it's better for you if I go because then the Holy Spirit can come and I can only be with you like one at a time with like 10 people or whatever. But when the Holy Spirit, that, that Holy Spirit can empower you to continue the ministry, um, all of you in all places and all times, it's good news, right? And then Jesus departs and goes um, into, into heaven. They're standing there and the angel comes and says, well, he went out, I don't know, we don't know what. And he's, so the, then the angel says, go and wait for the one that was promised to come on you in power. So they go and they wait. And then what happens? The Holy Spirit comes. Good news. That's why you owe this morning. Right? So the Holy Spirit comes. And, and, and that's not the end. The Holy Spirit doesn't just come to give us emotion. The Holy Spirit comes to empower us to continue the work of Jesus Christ. That's why the church is called the body of Christ. We become the continuation of that incarnation to do what? Work restorative justice. Let me, let me give it to you in Paul's phrase. God was rallying the world to himself in Christ Jesus and has now given us the ministry of the right arm of God, bent things back into alignment, restorative justice through Jesus Christ. And now we are the right arm of God that is able to bend things back into alignment and it's a, it's a good news for the world. That's why the church is like a city on a hill. It's a light. It's salt and light. Because we are that incarnation. We're that work of justice that God does. Let me give you a, one more argument to kind of nail it home. Now, I really have fun if I get with fundamentalists because they're fun to tease. Because they don't have a sense of humor in America. I'm sure they're great here. Um, but fun America don't have a sense of humor. So I tell them that we... Uh, that we we make too much of the cross. You want to see people, Christians freak out. Just tell them you make too much of it. And, and I'm obviously saying that facetiously, so don't get, maybe you don't, um, jet lag. Jet, just claim jet lag. Um, here, here's what I mean to say. Um, when Jesus died on the cross, we're told in the Gospels that something crazy happens. The, 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 thun, the, the skies thunder and the lightning flashed. And on the temple mound, you had this courtyard area, and then you had the altar, and, and sheep used to be killed on that altar because the blood covered our sin. It washed us clean. Why did that matter? Because you come closer to 
the, the center of the temple, which was where God dwelled. And there was a holy place, and then there was the most holy place. And the Spirit of God dwelt in the most holy place because God is, is perfect holy. He's like white paint. Kids, you mix even a drop of gray in a bucket of white paint, it's not white anymore. And so we couldn't, even though, uh, because we're impure, even though we could come close to God, we couldn't come all the way into the presence of God. So there's this temple veil that separated us from God. God lived in the, in the most holy place. So this is, this is the temple mound. Still there today, by the way. It's where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is in the Dome of the Rock. But it's still that same area where the temple was. So Jesus died. Lightning flashes. Here's the altar. Now, the altar cracks in half. Because never again is there going to need to be a sacrifice because Jesus died, just died for the forgiveness of sins, right? So C.S. Lewis was right in the, in the wardrobe when the table that Aslan was killed on cracks, right? C.S. Lewis was right that, that Jesus died, cross, never again is there going to need to be a sacrifice so the altar cracks. True or false? I'm setting you up. True or false? True or False. False. I told you I was setting you up. You guys just hung in there. I told you I was setting you up. That's not what happened. If you'd had your phone, you were by the altar, and you were ready to Instagram the big, the big cracking, it actually never happened. What did happen? The veil was torn from top to bottom that the station between God and us was ripped in two because now, like it says in Hebrews, because of Jesus' death, we can come boldly before the throne of God and, and, and exist with God because we've been made clean. What is this what saying here? The cross, listen to me, brothers and sisters. The cross was a means to an end. The cross was not an end. And so when we say the cross, the next thing is righteousness. The next thing is this. We're, we're just, we're butchering the whole of it. Because the gospel is not the cross. The gospel is reconciliation. It's relationship with God. And the cross was the means or the mechanism which that reconciliation, restorative justice, happened. So we've somehow, and I can tell, I could give you the whole history of this, it, it really goes back to the Reformation and the battle between um, the Reformers and the, and the Catholic Church, and, and that battle centered on justification, which, which is really the cross. And so we, we, we argued over this part of the gospel for so long that we began to just be myopic and think that this was the entirety of the gospel, right? The cross, a dominant symbol, didn't even uh, become the symbol for 100 or 150 years after Jesus died. What was the earliest Christian symbol? The fish, the ichthus. Ichthus just stands for Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, um, which is again inbreaking, right arm of, of God. So the gospel is the inbreaking, the incarnation, the life, ministry, and teaching of Jesus' death, uh, of, of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, imparting of the Holy Spirit to empower us with the future promise of Christ's return. The good news is this whole story of Jesus Christ. And, and we have to get out of being myopic again to get back to seeing that the means and the ends all go together. And when we understand that, we go, wait a second. I can't even understand the good news apart from the fact that there is injustice, 
that God wants justice, is working restorative justice, that I've been reconciled to him, and now I have this ministry of going out and being a part of that same work. And I can't just sit in my small groups and talk about spiritual intimacy with God like the Pharisees did and miss the weightier matters of the law because God's not going to be okay with that. So um, I'm a bit sarcastic. So when I argue with um, pastors in the States that are really hung up on imputed righteousness or, or the kind of the, the only gospel, that myopic bit, I, I, finally, I finally just pretend that they've got me. And I say, oh, okay, I think, I've, I think you've finally broken through to me. I think I got it now. Um, let me repeat it back to you. Let me, let me repeat back to you. And then you tell me if I'm understanding correctly. And they're like, you know, so they get kind of smug. And they're like, okay, go ahead and say it back to me. And this is what I say. So the gospel is um, how unjust people can stand next to a just God as if we're just through a justification where, whereby we're justified but it has everything to do with righteousness and nothing to do with justice. Am I understanding correctly? And, and what happens is all of a sudden these pastors that have been using words like justified and justification all throughout their seminary and, and, and wonderful kind of preaching career realize that they've been tripping over justice language all along, but never understood it as justice. And, uh, and so that's why I'm passionate. You should go to the Justice Conference. They've got a great video they might be able to put online for you. But, but it's not about justice workers or NGO workers or nonprofit workers going to a conference on justice because it's periphery or, or tertiary. It's about all of us in, in the body of Christ understanding that God has a heart for the vulnerable and the poor and the oppressed, the refugee, the widow, those in prison, those that need clothing, and that we get this wonderful opportunity of joining with the Spirit of God's great work of reconciliation that's going on and that we get to look forward to the day that that's finally established when all of us live together in equity and fairness and justice and righteousness, truth and beauty and shalom, flourishing and because it's now back to the way it ought to be. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, Let us be your ministers of justice. Let us be agents of reconciliation. As I say that now, it, um, it's actually a crushing weight feeling to me. I'm selfish. I don't like to sacrifice, Father, um, but I do like to follow you. So I pray you would take my faith. I pray you would take the faith of the people in this room. I pray that you would help us to learn to encourage one another, spur each other on to love and good deeds, and that we would somehow more and more, uh, day by day, be able to live out this beautiful calling of salt and light, that we'd be a city on a hill, that, that people in this community, in this city, in this country, in the world would look at Christians and see good news. That would be for, for great for all the people as we work towards peace on earth. We commit this to you. It's your church. We are your church. Uh, so we submit to you and follow your direction. In Jesus Christ, amen.